Well, good morning again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. And this morning we'll be wrapping up our series in the book of Colossians, getting ready for Advent, uh, by looking at the New Testament book of Philemon, which is connected to Colossians, and I'll explain that later. Uh, It's found on page 10 in your order of worship. And if you're one of our guests here today, we're glad you're here. Welcome again. Um, Today what we do at this point is we open up God's Word and we look at it and we try to apply God's Word to us in our lives today, submitting ourselves to it. This is not my TED Talk about what I think the state of the world is or anything like that. You don't need to hear my thoughts on anything. This is We go to God's Word and seek to apply it to our own lives. And so um, today's passage is going to be found on page 940 in that black pew Bible or chair Bible there in front of you. And again, if you're one of our guests uh, and you don't have a Bible at home, please do take that one uh, with you. We would love for you to have that. Again, today's passage is found on page 940 in that Bible. It's also found on page 10 in your order of worship. So to set the tone for this text today, you know, sometimes there are conflicts in church world. There, something wrong has been done, something sinful has been done, and the Bible gives us ways to, for personal conflicts like that to come together and be fixed. Very clear, very simple. But, but what do you do when there's a conflict or, or there's a clash over competing convictions? Where there, it's not that this is right and this is wrong. It's not even that this is good and this is better. It's that this is good and this is good. How do we find wisdom when these two things clash? What do we do? How do we fix that? That's what the book of Philemon, this little letter, is about. Philemon, as we'll get into it, had law, he had culture, he had the economy, and he had the ever-powerful tradition on his side of, these, of this particular issue. Paul had theology. That's about it. He had specifically the idea of our union with Christ, that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as the resurrected Lord, what is true of him becomes true of us. We are brought in and united to him. And so we are also united to everyone else who is united to Jesus. Our union with Christ is the reason we say we're brothers and sisters, that we're family. We really are united to each other. So Paul had that. So what do we do when there is an important issue being come at from two viewpoints? And again, it's not that one is good and and bad, not that one is sinful and pure. It's not even that one is good and better. They're both good. What do we do? Well, outside of Christ, we know this very well. We manipulate we work back channels, we gossip, we sell our agenda, we politic. Inside of Jesus, though, what do we do? We submit to his agenda over ours. In our differing viewpoints, we remind each other that it's all about Jesus, especially when it costs us, especially when it's something that we just don't want to do. Philemon is going to walk us through today how to navigate that kind of viewpoint conflict. Conflict's not even the right word. It's a viewpoint clash. Paul and Philemon are not in a conflict. Philemon doesn't even know. He's just doing status quo. And so Paul sends him a letter saying, hey, instead of the status quo, have you considered how your faith challenges that status quo? 
So if you've been longing for some maybe the Bible in general to be more practical or maybe specifically like will Sean say something practical, this might be your day. You might be able to use some of this throughout the week, maybe especially on Thursday at some point when that one relative always brings up, you know, politics and religion at the table. So why are we in Philemon as part of Colossians? Well, Philemon was a, was a well-to-do uh, leader in the Colossian church, and the Colossian church actually met in his house. So the letter of Colossians was publicly read to the crowd in his home. One of those people in his home who was not yet a member of the church was a bond servant, a slave, a household slave, who people got to know because he was there. He hears some stuff about this apostle Paul. He escapes illegally, makes his way to Paul, becomes a Christian, and now Paul is sending him back as part of the entourage bringing the letter of Colossians and this letter to Philemon. And basically this letter, I'll make it real quick, easy for you. Philemon, I have your slave. Take him back. The end. That's this letter. But here's the twist. Take him back now as your brother in Christ. Not just a slave, but your brother in Christ as well. And one more thing before we get to the text. I harp on this all the time. That word Y-O-U in the New Testament almost always is plural. It's y'all. This is the exception. Verses 4 through 21, every Y-O-U is singular. He is talking directly to Philemon in front of the whole church. It's a publicly read letter, and he's talking to Philemon directly. So this is a a really long passage. It's 25 verses. What we're going to do a little different today, I'm not going to read the whole thing and then talk about it. I'm going to read sections at a time and then uh, we'll preach through it so we don't have to listen to all 25 verses because that's just a lot to listen to. So let's look now together at God's Word, chapter uh, page 10 in your order of worship, page 940 in the chair Bible. We'll look at the first three verses first. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. And gracious God and heavenly fathers, we come before your word today. We pray, Father God, that as we work through a letter that's kind of convoluted and hard to follow, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us insight, that you would open this text up to us for our growth and for our transformation, that we might see ourselves, see Jesus in all his glory and long for him. We pray especially, Father, that you would give us wisdom on how to deal with other Christians who see things differently in a way that honors you. We pray for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme we're going to orbit around today, what I really want you to get is this, is that when Christians have conflicting goals, the right path is to find Jesus' agenda together. And we're going to see that when there's conflicts on Jesus' team, what do you do? Well, you tell the truth, You own where the other person is right, and you respectfully ask them to consider a different way. So let's jump in. So Paul begins this with an easy truth. It's a typical greeting for Philemon, his wife, and his son. We know from the end of Colossians that his son, Archippus, is some sort of like pastoral intern or senses a call to ministry. And so he's kind of being raised up on how to be a pastor at this point. And he also addresses, did you catch that? He addresses these three specific people. And then he says, to the church meeting in your house. This is a publicly read letter. 
He offers grace and peace to the community, and then he talks to Philemon in front of everyone. And this is one of the things we know. This is, this is why we know this is not a conflict. There's not an ongoing thing between Paul and Philemon because the Bible makes it very clear. If there's a conflict, going publicly to the church is the last step, not the first step. So this is instead, Philemon is firmly set in the status quo, and Paul comes and says, hey, in the good status quo, have you considered how the gospel changes that? So he publicly reads this out loud because Paul has this crazy idea that the church has a role in an individual's understanding of how they live their life as a Christian. So he brings it to everybody. So let's look together now at verses 4 through 7. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. All right, so quick summary. What did did Paul just say? So Paul prays that Philemon would see what's going on, that he would see the issue. Verse 5, he says, hey, I am grateful to God, Philemon, for your love and your faithfulness to Christ and to his people. Verse 6, he goes, he says, I pray that that faithfulness will lead you to understand that all the good Christians do is done unto Jesus. He receives our faithfulness faithfulness as worship. In verse 7, Paul then says, I'm so joyful about how you've served other Christians. All right, now let's unpack all that. So first of all, notice in verse 5, Paul says, towards Jesus. If you've been around a little bit, you know that's not what Paul usually says. Paul usually says in Jesus, talking about our union with Christ, that we have love in Jesus. We have holiness in Jesus. We have justification in Jesus. Here Paul says not in Jesus, so he's not saying the faithfulness or the faith that you have in Jesus. He's saying what you have towards. We could translate it unto or for the sake of Jesus. And then he says faith. This is not the belief that Philemon has in this context. The word faith in the New Testament can mean faith. It can also mean faithfulness. And context tells us how to translate it. And here, the context, this is his faithfulness towards Jesus and towards other Christians. In other words, what he says is this, Philemon, you love other Christians. You love Jesus. You are faithful towards them. I've heard of that, and I'm so grateful that that's who you are, Philemon. He tells Philemon the truth. He says, hey, you are a faithful, mature Christian, and I thank God for you. He doesn't start this with saying, man, you are so wrong-headed on this issue. You need to straighten up. He's like, no, you're doing great. You're faithful. You're mature. And then we get to verse 6, and verse 6 is, a, is the pivotal verse of the whole book, and it's really convoluted Greek, which is saying something, because Greek is kind of convoluted anyway. So we'll work through this together. So the first thing there in verse 6 is that word, the sharing. It says, I pray that the sharing of your faith. So sharing here is the word for, it's the koinonia. It's the word for fellowship. It's also the word used to refer to this table as the sharing, the participation, even the manifestation. So what he's saying here is he's saying, I pray that the embodiment, the manifestation of your faith. 
And in context, he says, the sharing of your faith. Usually that phrase means verbal evangelism, right? In this context, that's not what Paul's saying. In this context, he's mean, he means the manifestation of your faithfulness. He's not talking about his words. He's talking about his life. You have manifested faithfulness to all the saints and unto Jesus. You've done this. You have been a faithful person. You have lived out what you believe. And so he says, I pray that that living out what you believe will give you full knowledge. I really hope you understand that the good in Christians, the good you're doing and the good in other Christians, that's unto Jesus. Are we confused yet? All right. I told you it's convoluted. Right, let's, so let's pull these threads together and what's going on here, okay? I put together a, a very a paraphrase of this. I just want a caveat. I'm not a Greek scholar. Always trust the ESV over me, okay? But to kind of help this convoluted verse, here's a paraphrase that I put together for us of verse 6. I pray that the embodiment of your faithfulness, Philemon, becomes powerful knowledge for you of all the good in us unto Christ. So you're embodying faithfulness, and I pray that you understand that when you do that, that's unto Jesus. And when you get other Christians to do that, that's unto Jesus as well. He says, look, I'm praying that the fruitfulness of your life in the church, I pray that you'll see that, that that faithfulness has been done unto Jesus. So here's what's going on here. If you've been around church world, you know this famous story, right? Jesus tells the story about people who have died. They stand before him, and, he, and they say, hey, let me into heaven. I'm ready. And Jesus says, I don't know. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. When I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. And you know the story, right? They look at him and go, we never saw you hungry or thirsty. What are you talking about? Remember his famous answer, Matthew 25, 40? Look at Matthew 25, 40. His answer is, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Okay, here's where I'm going with this. Matthew's gospel, as Paul is writing Philemon, is hot off the presses. It most likely hasn't made its way to Colossae yet. They haven't read Matthew 25, but Paul is saying the exact same thing. Philemon, your faithfulness to other Christians is your faithfulness to Jesus. He receives it as you have done it to the least of them. You've done it unto him. I want you to see that what you do, Jesus receives himself. And why is he doing that? Because Philemon's a leader in the church. He's most likely a ruling elder, we would call him today. Paul is not buttering him up. Paul is giving him an easy truth. He says, man, you have been faithful. You have been great. Jesus is honored by what you do. Jesus himself receives that. What you have done is for the sake of Jesus. And he's getting him ready challenge his status quo and he's going to start saying to him hey instead of receiving Onesimus back as a slave who serves you maybe you should consider that you're getting Onesimus back because now he's part of the congregation that you're supposed to serve that you are to serve him because he's your brother in Christ he doesn't exist just to serve you anymore. Paul is setting him up for that big ask with this easy truth because when Christians have conflicting goals, the right path is to find Jesus' agenda together. So he goes from an easy truth to a hard truth. He just prayed that Philemon will see the issue and now Paul respects him while disagreeing with him. Look with me. Let's look together at verses 8 through 10 now. 
Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. Okay, so Paul says, look, I'm one of the apostles. I absolutely have authority to tell you, you will take him back as a brother. You will treat him as a brother. You will no longer treat him as a slave. But he says, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to have to force you to do what's required. We could translate that what's proper, what's fitting. Instead, he appeals. We could translate this begs, beseeches. I beg of you for my child because he has now become a Christian under my ministry and I love him. He doesn't call him my brother. He says, he's my child. In other words, what is Paul saying here? You you get this? Paul says, I absolutely have the authority to treat you as a master and you my slave. I can order you, but I'm not. And I want you to give the same courtesy to Onesimus. I want you to be that super faithful person we just looked at from verse five and six, who's serving the church so well. I want you to see that Onesimus is now part of that church. Serve him. Don't just lord over him. See, Onesimus is an escaped slave. Let's, let's, let's rewind ourselves back to culture 2,000 years ago. There were always way more slaves than there were Roman citizens and non-slaves. Rome lived in constant fear of slave uprisings, and so escaped slaves were treated rather harshly. When Onesimus came back, it was expected, even assumed, required might be a little rough reading of Roman law, but it was implied heavily, you better beat him. You better make sure the other slaves recognize this is bad, don't ever do this again. Completely within his rights, that's the status quo, that's the culture, that's the tradition, that's the economy. Paul doesn't challenge that. Paul basically says, hey, have you considered how the gospel now changes your relationship to Onesimus and tradition and what's expected from your culture? He's not coming right out and saying it, but the innuendo is very heavy. Don't punish him. Christians don't treat other Christians like slaves. All right, 11 through 14 now. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. All right, so Real quick, what's going on here? Verse 12, Paul is obeying the law. He is sending a runaway slave back to his owner. He's not saying, slavery is wrong. I refuse to obey this law. You can't have him. Paul obeys the law. Rome says you own him. I'm sending back your property. But then in verse 13, he says, however, before you think of him as your property, he's also my child. And in verse 14, he admits that Philemon has a say in this. You are the one who has the authority in this matter. See, Paul is completely laying out his heart. He's not trying to manipulate. 
His motivations are very clear. He's not holding anything behind his chest, behind his back. He's not playing things close to the chest to control how it goes. See, that's, that's not what manipulators do, do they? Manipulators talk behind the scenes. They use passive-aggressive techniques. Techniques. They, they fix the truth. They withhold key facts. They control the narrative, right? I hate that phrase. Paul doesn't do that. Paul just puts it on out there. Philemon, you have rights. You haven't done anything wrong. I don't want to force your hand and command you to be the verses five, verses six person to him, but I really want you to want to be that to him. Let's go on. Verses 15 and 16 now. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So right before this, Paul admitted, hey, Rome says you own him. And he doesn't contradict that, but notice what he does here. Paul reminds him, um, just to be clear, Jesus says he owns him. And he owns you, Philemon. So y'all are brothers. And I love Paul's euphemism here. He says, oh, he was parted from you for a little while. You mean his illegal escape from slavery. (laughs) Philemon is totally allowed to punish him according to law and custom. Paul is not denying him his rights, but he reminds him, your primary relationship to him now is in Jesus, not in Rome. He is your brother first. You are his master second. It's a hard, hard truth. In verse 15, he appeals to God's sovereignty. This is like the ultimate Jesus juke. How do you answer this one? He goes, well, perhaps God compelled him to escape so he could find me and come to faith and trust in Christ. Who knows? How how do you answer that one? I don't know how to answer that one if you wanted to, right? That's exactly what happened. And then Paul gives a very subtle and yet I believe clear and open invitation to set Onesimus free in verse 16 with that little phrase, no longer a slave. See, if Philemon really treats him as a brother in Christ, how could he possibly go back to treating him as a walking appliance? You just can't do it if you really say, this is my brother in Christ. Okay, now I know at this point, from our perspective historically, let's just own it. This seems really weak, doesn't it? Why can't Paul just take a stand and say slavery is wrong? Why does he have to use innuendo, all this back channel? Why can't he just say slavery is wrong, you can't have him back until you repent of it, and then I'll send him to you, right? But again, we're looking at that after 2,000 years of how Christianity has affected culture. Let's rewind the tape to 2,000 years ago, and for its time, this was incredibly subversive. This was incredibly radical, You can look this up. Even secular scholars of social movements point to the ministry of the Apostle Paul as one of the things that helped to start getting rid of slavery. In fact, some scholars say that Paul's appeal to Caesar fails, which it does. He never gets off death row. He is executed by Caesar. He never gets out of jail. One of the reasons his appeal failed is because something like Philemon was such a threat. 
Now, I haven't researched this, but one scholar I read this week says this is one of the first times in recorded written human history that someone makes a supernatural appeal why slavery is wrong. That may be wrong. I, I I'm quoting somebody else, but it seems pretty, pretty clear. Paul makes a supernatural appeal that slavery should not be, and that undermines the entire system, and that was a threat to Rome. Because Rome said Philemon could own Onesimus. Paul says, actually, Jesus owns you both. And he hints very strongly that Jesus' ownership wins. See, when Christians have conflicting goals, the right path is to find Jesus' agenda together. So he's given him an easy truth. He's given him a hard truth. And now he's going to give him a hard ask. Let's look at verses 17 through 20 together. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from the Lord in you. Refresh my heart in Christ. So Paul says to him, hey, partner with him as you would partner with me. If, you, if you're a note-taking person, you might want to circle that word partner there and draw a line up to verse 6 where it says partnership again. It's the same word. It's a verb in verse 6. It's a noun right here. It's the same word. So he's basically saying, hey, just like you did to all the church at Colossae in verse 6, do with me and Onesimus right now. Partner with us. Receive him as you would receive me. Very, very bland translation of a very emotive word. This is the word for embracing. This is the word for taking to yourself. He says, reach out and grab him and hold him exactly like you would hold me. If I were to show up, would you put cuffs on me and be like, welcome home, slave? Then don't do it to Onesimus. Embrace him as you would embrace me. In other words, the hint is what? Set him free. Verse 18, maybe he did steal from you. Fine. That's on me. And that's not just throwaway words. Okay, here's how slavery worked for most people in the Roman Empire, okay? There were two groups of slaves. There were those who were defeated in battle and their life was literally sacrificed. They became, they got, they got sold into slavery. Many people, especially educated household slaves, like most likely Onesimus is, got into financial trouble. They went to a rich person that they knew, like, hey, I need like $15,000, $20,000 to take care of this issue. Okay, what's your collateral? I'm the collateral. Okay, and so they would agree to a bond. That's why he's a bond servant. You are bonded to me for, let's say, six years for free labor, and that will equal the amount of money I'm going to give you. So in this case, if it, was, if it followed the historical pattern, Philemon had already given him a chunk of change. Onesimus used it for whatever his debt was, and now he's in the middle of working that off. When he abandons it, that money is still there, right? Philemon hasn't been paid back. This is a big deal. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, God told me that you need to give your car to that missionary. You're like, well, it's not paid off yet. Don't care. Keep making the payment right? That's more than sentimental, isn't it? This is a big deal. This is a big ask. 
This is not easy. But Paul's like, fine, if he stole it, charge it to me. Paul, who's in prison, paying his own rent, by the way, in prison. Not sure how he's paying for that, but... And then verse 19, it, it, basically he says, look, if it's such a big deal, fine, I'll repay it. But remember, I brought you the gospel. Is, is this a flex? Is, is that what Paul's doing? No. Remember the context. Colossians has just been read. Perhaps the previous Lord's Day, perhaps the previous hour. We don't know. And the whole thing of Colossians, remember what's going on? They are having all these conflicts in the church because the false teachers came in and got them to deny the gospel, to focus on legalism and behavior, and they were tearing each other apart. And it was a faithful elder like Philemon who was in the midst of all that keeping the peace. All of that stuff he bragged about them on in verse 5 and 6 was stuff taking place in the book of Colossians. You kept these people from killing each other. Well done, brother. Now... If you remember, what was Paul's simple instruction? He has all this stuff in the book of Colossians, but you boil it down, he gave a very simple instruction for Christians in strife and conflict. You remember? Let me remind you, Colossians 3.13 says this, If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. No caveats. Paul says if you're a Christian, you forgive each other. Yeah, but they haven't. Forgive each other. If you've been forgiven, forgiveness is the language you speak. It just flows out of you. Paul is applying that to Philemon now in a hard, expensive place. Yes, he has wronged you. He probably does owe you money. Forgive him anyway. Verse 20, since we're now brothers, I do want something from you. I absolutely want some benefit from you. Show gospel love to Onesimus. Validate my ministry. Show that the Spirit has actually used me to change your life. Show that the gospel in you is real. And then Paul concludes. Let's look together at his conclusion, verses 21 through 25. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul owns, man, this is a hard ask. I know. I'm confident of your obedience. I think, I think you're going to do the right thing. Paul obviously thinks he's going to get out soon. This church at Colossae is praying for his release. So Paul says, hey, God's going to answer our prayers. I believe it. Make my room ready. He adds in the customary fellow greetings and he hangs up the phone. Having made a very hard ask to Philemon, hoping that he will pursue Jesus' agenda rather than his own. Because when Christians have conflicting goals, the right path is to find Jesus' agenda together. All right, so let's wrap this up. So Paul appeals to Onesimus's, yeah, you get it, equality and freedom, not based on the image of God, not based on human rights, those hadn't been invented yet, not based on morality, not based even on right and wrong. Paul doesn't do that. What does Paul do? Paul appeals to Christian love. Paul says, as I love Onesimus and as I love you, Philemon, so too you love Onesimus and you love me. Why? 
because of Jesus. Again, if you're sitting here thinking it may, it may sound weak, let me uh, give a plug for one more resource. There's a secular, non-Christian, um, popular historian out there named Tom Holland, not the guy who plays Spider-Man. This is a different guy. Anyway, named Tom, but you'll remember his name now, right? Tom Holland, he wrote a book called Dominion. And the, and the book is about, the subtitle is something along the lines of how the Christian revolution shaped Western culture. And he goes through and he traces our whole concept of, of equal rights, human rights, dignity, all the things, traces it all back to the New Testament. And here's the deal. He doesn't believe a lick of the New Testament. Thinks it's wrong. He doesn't think it's supernatural. He doesn't think it's the word of God. But he says, as an as a intellectually honest historian, these ideas came from Christianity. And right here is one of the places he and many others point to where Paul takes a sledgehammer to the foundation of slavery and smashes a big old crack in it and starts to say for the first time, God doesn't want people being treated as slaves, as merchandise, as objects. For the love of Jesus, literally, Christians don't do that to each other. Because when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you're brought into union with him. And so you're in union with other Christians. How can you treat your brothers and sisters this way? Oh, if you want to see the world changed and you're a Christian, I hope you rejoice to see how powerful this is when Paul applies the gospel truth to a hard issue in culture. And if you're not a Christian, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, man, if you want to see a better world, do you see the resources that Christianity has? That it can bring to bear real power on a real issue that's really hard. Think of what it can do in our issues for us today. Well, if you want to see a better world, you should want the gospel to be true. And the good news is it is true. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you can have access to these resources you can be reconciled back to God and you can actually love other people in a way you haven't before because you're empowered by Christ to do so. Well, if you want that, confess faith in Christ even now. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we come to a text that challenges us. It's always hard. Lord, I know in my heart I often seek to deflect instead of repent and change. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to absorb your word today and that where it challenges us, we will look seriously at our own hearts. I pray, Father God, that you would help us as Christians to be faithful in our love towards others, recognizing that it's actually love to you. And we pray, Father, for those here today who may not know you. Lord, we pray that as Jesus Christ has been shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would do, do your work, that you would draw all people to yourself even now. Oh, Father, would you build your kingdom and cause many to confess and believe in Christ as Lord. We pray this in his great name. Amen.